Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. Today is Friday the 12th of June. Michael, how have you been? Disappointed. Miss Aaron promised me that we'd be back to summer by now and it's cold and wet and nasty. I want to sit in the garden and eat chocolate and I can't. Don't worry about that, Michael, because you can enjoy the simple pleasures of life. You, on a day that's not terribly good, can sit in and watch some of your favourite old TV shows. As one by one they disappear from Netflix. As one by one they disappear from Netflix, the BBC, Channel 4 player, and anything that uh, that people can think of, really. And yet, and yet... Like, well, the first one of the first ones to go was, uh, as we know, that Mark Mitchell classic "Gone with the Wind," um, which I believe was the film was the first film that had an African American actress win a. Uh, I'm not sure it was an Oscar. Oscar, no, won, won an Oscar, won an Oscar. Hetty, I can't remember Hetty McDaniel, something like that. Which is a wonderful thing in an attempt to cut down on the on racism and racist portrayals, we've in fact removed the movie which first saw a black actor win acting's highest accolade. But did you have you looked at uh, Amazon recently and, and you know the sales uh, movie sales and on Amazon? Because you may not if you haven't you may not have looked. They ran out. They have run out of Gone with the Wind. Having when it was taken off the streaming platform, in a response, the pop, the good people of the world went and said, okay, let's go and buy Gone with the Wind. So maybe it was a really clever marketing ploy by Amazon, I don't know. But you cannot buy it now, because it has, and it is now absolute number one best-selling movie on Amazon. So Gone with the Wind goes, Ali G goes, Little Britain goes. How long until they get to Father Ted, Michael? Because remember, there is that episode involving the Nazis, and there is also the episode where the priests end up in blackface. So that's going to have to go as well. Yeah, because they're they're dressed up as the Supremes. Whatever about Little Britain, I which mean, I found more grotesque than to ban Ali G just seems like a, a final and perfect demonstration. These people obviously have no sense of humour, but that they're not really they're thick. If they don't get that Ali G is just this a wonderful piece of satire on, if to use their language, cultural appropriation, the way that urban white, suburban rather, white middle class kids ape and mimic the tones, the attitudes, and the language of that of rapper culture, of hip hop culture from the United States, and produce these produce these ridiculous results, which is Ali G. And that's why it's funny. How you can be... I, it's bizarre. But when we know where you go now, they've, they've taken away the Germans episode, don't mention the war, whatever you do, don't mention the war, from Faulty Towers. Now, what I don't get about that, Gary, is if you're going to go... Surely all of Faulty Towers has to go. I mean, Manuel... Ah, I know nothing. Uh, I am from Barcelona. Is an offensive stereotype uh, for Spanish people. Are the Spanish not, as we speak, marching in the streets of Barcelona, Madrid, demanding all of the uh, all those offensive episodes come down? There's David Kelly who plays the Irish builder. 
stereotypically bad builder? Why, why is he not? Why, why? The whole thing has to go there. All of it. All of it. I tell you. Are the Germans rioting, actually, by the way? I don't believe so. Germans don't, don't tend to riot. They let the rage build up and then shoot all the Jews. <laughs> well, that's probably a bit unfair. I don't think the Italians are rioting either. For what I can see. Um, maybe they're still a little bit too worked up about dying in large numbers from COVID in Bergamo. Uh, is this, I wonder, is this a basically an Anglican... Sometimes these well, things there, happen. There were, there were police clashes last week. Um, but I don't think it um, it got anywhere like what we've seen in the UK or in uh, America. Although the Germans torn down most of the problematic statues already. Yeah, well, they've had a, a lot of opportunity. Do you know what I find really interesting uh, about this? About all of these shows being cancelled just sequentially, just one after the other. Another comedy show. They're all comedies, firstly, which is quite funny. Uh, but not really surprising because the progressives tend to be totally humorlessless uh, and just scolds. But it's the fact that no one, no one has asked for this. No one has told them to do this. That to me—it's just a series of companies yeah. making this decision, apparently independently. That to me is the real, the real thing here. And it's also maybe the, the worry of the concern. Somebody's making this decision. Some, it's coming from somewhere. Is it coming from just an old-fashioned cowardice? Oh my God! Oh that! Oh that! Oh people will come after us if we have that open. But on the basis of what we've seen cancelled so far, I don't see that anything can survive. And I'm not being dramatic. I genuinely don't. There's going to be an element of in any comedy. You're going to find there are going to be elements of th- things, particularly as you. As moments in time and cultures change, that they're going to be unacceptable. Lenny Bruce is often given as the, you know, the the patron saint of modern comedy, the patron saint of free speech, of of radicalism. Yeah, I think I, I think I know the sketch you're going to lean towards right now. I'm not going to make any references explicitly. All I'm going to observe is that Lenny, Lenny Bruce, not Lenny Henry, although maybe he did, I don't know. On the basis of what we're saying now, Lenny Bruce would have been taken out and stoned. Uh, yes, Lenny Bruce had a comedy skit, which was titled, Are There Any Niggers Here Tonight? Yes. As apparently, Michael will not say the name, he also had, uh, which I think is funnier, a skit called How to Relax Your Coloured Friends at Parties. <laughs> that is actually very good. In, there's a video of him. Uh, I'm trying to think, is it a video of him? Or is it a video of Dustin Hoffman playing him in the biopic? Where they're in, they're in, a, in a club and there's this... Well, there are, a number of, oh, there are a number of black people in the audience, but there's one black man sitting very stolidly staring up at him and not looking very and at the end of he 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 builds into this riff and he goes 
And he says, and there are so many kikes and how many? Three kikes, four kikes. I've got four kikes and I've got three grease balls and two gumbas. And I've got a mix. I've got two mix, three mix. I have a lace curtain, four lace curtain mix. And he uses all of these very, these ethnic and racial epithets and slurs and goes over. And he goes over to the guy and he says, who's now started to laugh. And he says, you're going to, you, you, you wanted to, you wanted to take a swing at me, didn't you? He, in the thing, he, and on the record, he makes the point that it's by investing these things. I don't understand why we have reached a stage, Gary, where that word. Now, we now hear people say, right, this is the standard thing. We say the N word. We should mention just at this point that this is this episode is going to be concerned primarily with race relations. And there may be a number of ethnic and racial slurs uttered during it, probably primarily by me. I would imagine so. I don't, when I, when, no, it's not that I, I, I say the N word, and I mean, inverted commas like that, that often. But what I do, I feel, first of all, infantilized. And secondly, there's a part of me which thinks I've become a Victorian lady. I'm a lady, I'm a lady, I can't say bad words like, you know, I'm using, I, I, I can't say the word because I am in some sense a, a fragile flower of femininity or else I'm a child. What, we have invested this word with this kind of strange fetish power. Do you know how you can get rid of that, Michael? By using the word? By using the word and... Not letting it become something that has a weirdly, almost religious, totemic significance. It blasphemy in the purest sense. It it's one of the. Now this isn't this isn't just to do with racial slurs. I hate the replacement of words by phrases like the c word or whatever. I, I partially because it just reminds me of a, a bit of Fry and Laura, a bit of Fry and Laurie sketch about a man who goes to a vet and says finds out that the dog has uh, cancer and the chap beside him looks and goes oh he's got the cancy wancy <laughs> yeah is he gonna die is he wise yeah 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 like, it's a word use it like an actual person hey I can, okay, I'll put, I, I can understand. <laughs> Again, I'm not known for my overwhelming sympathy to public perception. No, this is true. But I can understand. I can have a certain empathetic, sympathetic reaction. We are not the United States. In the United States, there's a, a weight of history and whatever there, that, which is not ours and which we don't understand. But surely... It would have made more sense to empty. And yet, at the same time, it's become an absolute commonplace to watch singers, rap artists, whatever, certainly stand-up comedians. I mean, from the days of Richard Pryor and uh, Eddie Murphy, right all, right up to like, Dave Chappelle. And who's the big comedian of the day today? The world's biggest. Chris Rock. Chris Rock. No, Dave Chappelle is the largest comedian today. I thought Dave Chappelle was sort of had was. Anyway, Dave Chappelle. No, Dave, huge. Dave Chappelle can is still one of the few comics who can fill out like a rock stadium. And he's the one that he's the 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 the, the, the comedian that all the other comedians want to be. 
still, and he's a very, very funny guy. And also, did you see that bit he did at abortion recently? That was very good. Although, to be honest, I, I preferred the bit about how he hates guns but has several. Yeah. But his capacity to take an audience on a journey and then flip it and then leave them wondering, oh, I don't know what I'm supposed to feel about that, is uh, absolutely fantastic. Well, they if use... he's wrong, maybe we're wrong, Michael. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I'm willing to be. I'm willing to. I'm willing to bet that Dave Chappelle is more likely to be right than wrong. It's certainly more likely than the guy who's running Seattle. But yeah, anyway. The... Eamon Ryan gets up in the doll, right? Makes a speech. And during the, that speech, he uses this word. And he quotes it. And it's in a context. And nobody thinks that Eamon Ryan is a racist. And nobody, nobody misunderstands. It's not, it's, you know, it's a word I've actually, I don't like. Uh, I don't like the sound of it. It's a nasty, horrible word. But then again, I, but I don't feel that it should have that power over me. And now we've all grown as people. Well, yeah. If only it was that simple that we could say a series of words like a magic incantation and we would all get back. He comes out. He then issues this groveling apology. He says he's made a terrible mistake. Terrible mistake. And I'm there gentle. What was this mistake? What was this terrible mistake? I mean, I, I resist the temptation to ring up my inverted commas black friends and ask them was this a terrible mistake because obviously they have the authority and the moral authority on this kind of thing. I just surely if you are so he's quoting someone who talked to a newspaper and he was talking about instances of racism he'd had happen to him in Ireland. Yes. And he had said that I think he, something like I was a certain age when someone first called me a nigger, and Eamon Ryan quoted that. Quoted. Surely. If you were talking to a newspaper about your experience of racism and someone is helping to bring what you are saying to a wider audience, you would want that quoted in full so that it actually has the impact of what you're saying, as opposed to this infantilized, childlike. Yeah. You can't even say the word. You have to use a reference, another like a staging ground word to get to it. And. You expect that the word at the point you will make using the word is going to be more impactful because you're making it in a speech in in Parliament. And the fact that you're aiming right when people will be surprised because people are surprised when the word is uttered. And yet, so he's absolutely bereft, absolutely shocked and horrified by what he's done. Lays down, and a lot of people say, oh, well, you know, it was a terrible thing to do, but we forgive him. I'm going, I'm walking around going, Oh, what did he do? What was the did, did I miss something? Did he shoot his valet at the same time as he was doing this? Which is wrong and you shouldn't do that. But then we have a case. One of his county councillors, you see this? Tweeted that it was a terrible and horrible thing. And it was just not acceptable. And could not be forgiven that this word of hate should be used. I, I obviously the internal party politics of the the Green Party are operating here. I think I think that's the case. I don't. I think there is a fair argument to be made here that that councillor did not in fact care about any question of whether or not it was racist. 
The words flying fuck come to mind. Yeah, it's not racist. He was quoting someone talking about uh, racial instances happening to him. Eamon Ryan is very... I don't like his politics, but Eamon Ryan is very clearly not racist. And if he is racist, he's racist in the progressive tyranny of low expectation sense. He didn't say it with hate in his heart, which I think, interestingly enough, that means there's a strong argument that while what Ryan did isn't racist, what the county councillor did is racist. Yes, because there was... This is the Reginald... Reginald D? Is it Reginald D? Reginald D. Hunter. Reginald D. Hunter's test. When asked by a white friend, is that racist? He said, well, did you say it with hate in your heart? Uh, which I think is a pretty, it's a pretty good metric for these things. Check yourself. Was there hate in your heart? No. Yeah, there probably wasn't racist. Well, I, th- I think there is a there is an argument that what the councillor did was racist, though. Because Ryan just said something that clearly yeah. had no <clears throat> aim in it. But that county councillor, by taking a story of uh, racial offence and repackaging it as a way to score political points, I think the Green Party has to have a serious look at that councillor and see where his heart was when he said those things. Well, indeed. I mean, we are now moving from treating people uh, as means and treating people as a means to an end rather than ends in themselves. And that would seem to be what's going on here. It's teleologically very, very wicked. Kant would be very disappointed. So, yeah, maybe big slaps for, big slaps for them, big spanks for being a bad person. Big, being a patently obvious prick, of course, should just get you a slap as well, but apparently it doesn't anymore. No, we stopped that, unfortunately. So, Eamon Ryan, anyway, in Major Stum. Um and very much looking like whatever's happening. This, this looks like it may be the kind, the kind of the final act in the failed opera to form a government. Uh, and we are now hearing for the first time dates, putative dates for a general election being thrown around the sixteenth of August, the tenth of August. We shall see, but. I think that this is the end of the government formation. Whether or not Ryan wins, whether or not Ryan wins the election, the leadership election, I think what is clear is that it's going to be tighter than you would like if you're going to go on the basis that you need sixty-six percent of the the membership to agree to go into government, and that doesn't look like it's there. It's also, I mean, the Green Party has been going increasingly weird the last couple of years. And people don't seem to have been paying terribly much uh, notice to it. So now everyone is terribly surprised that all of this is happening. What I actually found most interesting about this was when you go into the social media of the Greens, their TDs and their councillors, how few of them even bothered to retweet Eamon Ryan's apology or commented positively on the apology in a sort of look Eamon Ryan is clearly not racist this is stupid most of his TDs most of his counselors totally silent yes no no great no support no and it should have been more than just a sort of a retweet it should have been outrage and horror the very notion that 
Eamon Ryan's character was being impugned in this way. I mean, if, that, if, if the stance is that you can never use a racial slur, even when you are quoting someone, then, I mean, the current chairman of the, or chairperson, shall we say, of the Green Party, Hazel Chu, also has a bit of a problem because she has also used the word nigger when talking about someone else being racially abused. Yeah, but you know the difference between her and between Eamon Ryan? She's on the more progressive wing of the party, and so the people who turned on Ryan won't turn on her because she's useful to them. Because she's right and Eamon is wrong. Yeah. Yeah. So it's important to keep that in mind. I think we should just vote for the Whigs. With an H or without? With an H. Oh, okay. They'll, well, they'll come back at some point. You know, it's, it was somebody was tweeting out, I saw the other day. You know what? The idea that only people with property should be allowed to vote has some merit to it. Well, yeah. It's undeniable. I think it's a sensible policy for a better Britain. I'm a moderate, Gary. I think we should just raise the voting age to 30 and leave it at that. Mm-hmm. I think there should be one man, one vote. So long as I am that man. You, yeah. The oldies are goodies. Did I see what, Gary? Did you see uh, Pretty Patel, who is the uh, British Home Secretary? I've seen Pretty Patel many times. She was in Parliament, and one of the Black Labour MPs stood up and gave a staggering talk about how the uh, the Conservatives didn't understand the nature of racism, and this government didn't understand racism, and didn't understand the plight of minorities. And uh, just the full force of that progressive narrative, forgetting that Priti Patel is, I believe, of Pakistani extraction. Um, yes. It gets to the end and she just stands up. And well known for being a woman also. Well known for being a woman also. And says that she is not going to accept any sort of narrative from the other side that she doesn't understand racism. And goes on to tell a compelling story of uh, growing up and being repeatedly recalled a packy. And you do kind of get the sense of you legitimately forgot that there were any black or Asian people in the government when you were talking, didn't you? Yeah. yeah. But then, that's, that's one thing. So she knocks that back fairly effectively and just says, look, I obviously understand racism. Your, your point is ridiculous. Yes. But then what happens is they write to her. The uh, UK, the, the Labour MPs write to her a collection of all of the black Labour MPs. And it's a fantastic letter. So it, it opens by saying, we write to you as black, Asian and ethnic minority Labour MPs to highlight our dismay at the way you used your heritage and experiences of racism to gaslight the very real racism faced by black people and communities across the UK. Okay, Gary, could you take this just for a second there and explain gaslight to the listener? Because this is a big thing at the moment. A lot of people are doing a lot of gaslighting. Well, gaslighting is, um, it comes from a film called uh, Gaslight, which is from the 40s. And it's a type of, it's a manipulation technique, um, where you make a question, make a person question themselves, their their memory or their their um, their views on an issue. Uh, basically, you 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 lie to 
uh, you can undermine almost, their beliefs. There's almost a sense you can almost like drive them mad. Yeah, you you. It can range from really minor things to to really major things. It's generally considered a, an abusive behavior. Is a behavior fond of, of abusers, so they're effectively saying that she is trying to uh, tell them that their lived experiences. Oh, lived experience! Girl, I love a lived experience. I hate those unlived experiences. Can't be doing with those, but love a lived experience. Sorry, go on. Mm. So then, says we we all have our personal stories of the racism that we have faced, whether it has been defined by the color of our skin or the fate we choose to believe in. Our shared experiences allow us to feel the pain that communities feel when they face racism. They allow us to show solidarity towards a common cause. They do not allow us to define silence or impede on the feelings that other minority groups may face. Being a person of colour does not automatically make you an authority on all forms of racism. Kind of why are they writing that letter as people of colour then? The murder of George Floyd brought to light the authentic experiences of black men, women and children in the US and the UK from police brutality, through to the structural and institutional racism that unjustly targets black communities in the UK. Those experiences cannot be silenced by some shared feeling. Oh. And basically it closes by saying you should reflect on your words and consider the impact they had towards black communities. <gasps> mm-hmm. But I've never seen a letter like this. It's it's basically a very formal version of you're not a minority. You don't have the right views. So you, you don't get to do this. Mostly because really she could respond to that by just cut and pasting the line being a person of colour does not automatically make you an authority in all forms of racism. I think, there is, I think you hit the, the nail on the head earlier. I think he, that, that, that he was on his hind legs in Parliament and completely forgot that the person he was talking to was... The, the Home Secretary. The, the Home Secretary. Quite a high position. It's one of the three great offices of state uh, in the United Kingdom, Home Secretary, Chancellor and Foreign Secretary. And she's also quite a... Not only is she... Uh, she's the daughter of... Gujarati parents who had gone to Uganda to set up a business. They were kicked out of Uganda by Amin, famously, the East Africans, and then ended up in England where they ran a, a corner shop, and she ends up, their daughter ends up as uh, the Home Secretary, which is kind of impressive, in a cabinet, a Tory cabinet, which I think has probably got greater ethnic diversity than any cabinet since the foundation, since the, since Walpole. But they, no, I think that there's, that there's this, these people are so wrapped up in their own particular moment of moral righteousness, they just forgot the person in front of him was actually not a white woman. Yeah, and was going to be able to stand up and say, yeah, I've, I have experienced racism. That doesn't mean anything you're saying is right. Yeah. I, um, I particularly enjoyed the murder of George Floyd has brought to light the authentic experience of black men, women and children in the US and the UK and from police brutality. That's sort of... That's a jump. That's a bit of a jump because it would be difficult to see how the death of a black man by American police represents British police brutality. 
And I think the thinking that it does is what led to the scenes we saw earlier with protesters in London holding up their hands, saying, hands up, don't shoot, to unarmed British police officers, which didn't look like a fight back against systemic oppression, kind of just made you look like a gobshite. Uh, Yeah, it's also... If you look at the thing, the last year there were nine unarmed black men were killed by the police in the what you call it, in the in the United States. Now, if you then if you go away and you take that and you just you do it for. A, if you take that, but you then include people who are not who are also armed. Unfortunately, the the numbers go up quite a bit, but the total numbers in the United States are around forty six citizens uh, per ten million are killed at the hands or die at the hands of the police every every year in the United States. Last year in the United Kingdom, three people uh, died uh, at the hands of the police. Well, I think I'm just looking at the figures here. Um, Police, none none by military, none by intelligence, so that's three. And you're looking therefore at a rate per 10 million of 0.5 now i'm sure for the three people who died i don't know the circumstances doesn't say if they were armed or not armed whatever but it there does not seem to be gary under any litmus test a terrible outbreak of lethal police violence in the united kingdom no in the united kingdom very people do die in police custody but rather small amount uh, as I say, very significantly, very, 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 very significantly lower than the 46.6%, 46.6 people, citizens per 10 million in the United States. There is, one might say, something of an issue regarding possibly fatal violence used by police uh, on citizens in the United States. But this, <laughs> constructing a bridge from the killing of this unfortunate man in Minneapolis to an insight into the lives of men, women and children in the United Kingdom. It's almost like, is there an element of, I don't know, wraith, sort of envy here? Oh, well, we, we, we want to participate in this victimhood too. You've had a very Americanized culture. And I know people have been saying that for years, but... I think we can see from the, the speed with which these things have spread that our culture is, in fact, far more Americanized than I think even most people who study it realize. And it's weird because they've been things like this have been transplanted totally when they don't really make sense in a lot of places outside America. Yeah, and what you, you also tend to see is these things are, and I think, which I think it indicates that, that this is very much a cultural Globalization thing. I think I I mentioned I think I think to the in the last podcast that there is a sense in which the people in the in Ireland and in the in the United Kingdom and other places 
mostly in the Anglophone world, where this seems to have been really a big case. Are victims of American glo- cultural globalization just the same as the little girl who wants the Disney princess doll? Now, obviously, it's a different kind of thing, and it's far more pernicious and noxious than the Disney princess doll. But they are victims of cultural so, cult, cultural globalization just the same. Like, we are starting to hear people talk about the problem of racism in Ireland using exactly the same tone and language, and tools of analysis, but also solutions. I mean, the Irish Times is having an absolute field day on this. There was there was something that they put up um, the, the other day. Actually, I think today, which I found particularly interesting. Actually, it went up today. It was by Ronan uh, McGreevy. And it said, links to slave trade evident across Ireland. The Irish tended to have a very strongly held belief in their own white racial superiority. And Michael, he tries very hard. He tries very hard to make it an article. And he cannot find... I don't know, maybe I'm just biased against it, but it just—it doesn't seem like an article. It seems like a random string of facts that he could pull. That he thought... I, I, I would be curious to see what evidence he can adduce to show that the Irish had a very strong sense of their whiteness. Because if nothing else, I, I would have thought that whiteness defined itself in opposition to something but other this, than whiteness. This, this is the interesting thing. Damien Shields is the person that quote comes from. He's a historian. His speciality is um, the American Civil War and Irish involvement in it. And he says, this is his exact quote, Fundamentally, no matter where the Irish were, they tended to have a very strongly held belief in their own white racial superiority, something they shared with the great majority of other whites at the time. Now, I find that a bit odd for the following reason. White racial identity in America is fluid over time. Certain people were considered white at one time and not at another. It was not to do purely with the skin colour. And certain groups like Jews, Italians Mm -hmm. and Irish were not originally considered white. In fact, there's quite a lot of anti-Irish stuff in America uh, shortly after you start to see large amount of Irish people go over there. So at the time he's talking about the Civil War, Irish people weren't thought of as white. And they wouldn't have thought of themselves as white coming from Ireland because in Ireland there was no white identity because there's no... In America, the white identity effectively exists. Um, it is, weirdly enough, multinational and multi-ethnic. Mm-hmm. And there's no need for that in countries in Europe because traditionally they haven't been multinational and multi-ethnic. You were Polish or you were Romanian or you were ever. You didn't need a white identity. Ethnic diversity in Ireland was, well, I, I'm, oh, he's Scottish, so he's very different to me. That was ethnic so, diversity. So this, this idea that they had a strongly held belief in their own white racial superiority, they wouldn't have thought of themselves as white and no one else would have thought of them as white. So... No. I would question Mr. Shields. That didn't necessarily stop them being horrible and hateful to black Americans. I mean, we know in the draft riots that there were egregious, savage examples of racist violence by Irish immigrants uh, against uh, against um, African-Americans in New York. They burnt, famously, they burnt down a, uh, an orphanage. They lynched black men on but the that's, street. But that's not what he says. He no, I'm not, I, I'm not disputing that, but I'm saying... 
I'm not. I, I just want you know, to be clear. It's not. This is not in sense to say that Irish Americans have not were not at say at the time of the of their arrival in the United States just at the time of the Civil War, capable of pretty horrible um, racism. And I think that most people, this has become a kind of um, uh, an accepted fact amongst Irish people on on the island that I don't know if Irish Americans in the United States are aware of, that, that Irish America is a rather racist place. I mean, there is... When you see the Irish immigrants go to America, there's actually a lot of friction with black communities because they, they're they effectively seen as being in competition with each other. Because the Irish are at the bottom and the other people at the bottom are uh, African-Americans. So they are, they are effectively in competition. Allegedly, the, the, you know, the, the first language, the first English phrases that I, some Irish people would learn getting off the boat were phrases to... Uh, would, would, would racial epithets and insults to, to to black Americans. But it just it strikes me as I I, I would say Damien Shields as a historian knows far more than me about Irish involvement in the Civil War, but that strikes me as taking a modern reading, and then simply pushing it backwards. No, he makes the point that there were twenty thousand Irish Americans or Irish in America who fought for the Confederacy. It's worth pointing out there were one hundred and fifty thousand. Uh, Irish Americans who fought for the Union. Well, it's not important to point that out, Michael, because otherwise it would be in the article, and it's not. That is true. Um, a point uh, well made and uh, well taken. You are quite right. It can't be important because otherwise it would be in the article. I actually looked around the other day, just briefly mooched around the history of the locale here to try to find where we could. Uh, we had a number of landlords here. Oh, who also would have been landlords in the, in England and would have had held maybe plantations in the United in so maybe in the states, but also more likely in the West Indies, and therefore would have had a connection with slave owning. Um, you had Lord Calvert who was down in Cork, and he had Maryland. You really, it there there is a rather distasteful sense of people desperately trying to jump on a bandwagon here. There's nobody is asking the question. Okay, let's say for a moment, and I don't accept this, but as Irish politicians have been saying, Ireland today is systemically racist, structurally racist, it's a crisis of racism. Is there any reason to believe that using the tools and the analyses and the programs and projects that have been employed in the United States over the last 40 or 50 years? is actually, in any sense, the way to deal with that problem. That that process has been in any way successful. No, I mean, it's been terribly unsuccessful in America. I mean, there was recent research that showed a lot of the um, the training that the Americans are very fond of for unconscious racism and to build racial harmony actually increase feelings of racial segregation because they force people to pay more and more attention to the uh, racial makeup of the people around them. So, no, I would say it's not a terribly good idea. I It's not going to stop many people from trying. Though they do have the problem that Ireland historically didn't have a lot of uh, minorities in it. And what I think you'll see is you'll see people trying to link the Irish to British imperialism, saying that there was heavy involvement by the population 
and basically try and do a sins of your father kind of deal on it. But Gary, that's grand. Fine, work away. Who is innocent? Oh, no one. On the planet. Is this what, if, if we're going to do this, then let's do this to everybody. Let's do this to Imperial China and to Imperial Japan and to the Mughals and let's do it to the Burma and to the Kingdom of Sarawak. Let's do it to the, to Arabia, North Africa. Let's look at Ashanti and Dahomey and the, the, the great trading empires of West Africa. Uh, who is innocent? Are the Incas innocent? Are the Aztecs innocent? I, that's not to say that all the people are not guilty, but really, what is, what's the end play here? What's the outcome? What's the end game? What's Purity. The, what's the, yeah, but John McWhorter, I've, I've, I've referred to before, has said, John McWhorter has this theory that uh, uh, anti-racism has become this religious experience. And I think, as I've said, I think that this is becoming more and more as we see the rituals and, and 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 religious references that we've seen in the last number of days, this is increasingly true. It seems that the religious model that they've taken on is a is a very strict form of Calvinism, which is based on the total depravity of man. There is no possibility to achieve. There there are those who are saved. There are the elect and those who are damned. And there is actually no way. It's not like a Catholic model where you can go. And we've seen this with Amen. God love him. You could go confess your sin, do your peasant penance, get a penance, and be absolved. And once you get absolution, you're free to go. You are white and pure and innocent again. That's not an option in this particular metaphysics, in this particular theology. You are, you, we, those who are infected by the virus of whiteness. I don't. I haven't seen anybody actually suggest that there is an out up from this. That there is a, a point at which we can be purged. There is, there is, I, there is also what I find quite funny here. This is a great way for upper middle class white people to get jobs. The whole oh. anti-racism. There's currently the the top of the New York Times bestseller list. I think possibly one of the top books on Amazon at the minute is a book on race relations uh, by a white woman, a white woman whose entire position seems to be that she will teach other white women how not to be racist which i mean maybe we have to consider the overwhelming amount of racism amongst white women <laughs> i'm sure that in the united states it's not just upper, up, it's not just middle class um white women who are getting jobs i'm sure there are middle class and upper middle class black men and black women who are getting jobs out of it it's going to be trickier in ireland because we just don't have the pool of talent on the last census figures the country is still around 95 percent white so we're going to struggle there. Um, we should be seeing more Chinese people because of the invert. God, this language is so tedious. Non-white. I mean, I feel like a racist saying these things. Why am I? What, the, the, this talking about race and dis, this race and that distinction, and you got those who are mixed race and the child. It just feels like the kind of conversation people were having in Germany in 1934 when they're drawing up the laws. 1.7% of the population here is Chinese, which is the largest non-white grouping. So we presumably will see the, adv the, ad the, the, the advance of Chinese people more before we see anything. But who is pure? Gandhi. 
You would have thought Gandhi was fairly safe. I mean, I would have thought Gandhi. I would have thought Gandhi was fairly safe for this reason. None of this is based on the actual truth of the situation. This is this is a pure narrative power play. In many ways, this seems to be the replacement of an existing elite with a competing elite who are terribly unhappy that they didn't get everything they thought should be getting to them. And Gandhi... So the truth of the matter doesn't matter. So Gandhi, yeah, was a virulent racist. Just didn't think black people were people. And had some unsavoury sides to him. But I thought they would just skip him by because no, they were too worried Gary, about hold on. other stuff. We know that... Gandhi had certain opinions when he was in South Africa. Yes. I don't know if it's fair to, to, to assume or to ascribe that there are views that he held all of his life. No, that is true. However, his views in South Africa were not um, not great, Michael. No, I, they weren't. They were not good. Well, actually, but Gandhi bring... spends another 50 years or more on this planet and he, he, his ideas may have... In fact, we know in, in other parts of his life, his ideas changed and evolved. And I think we, uh, barring other evidence, I think we should allow the possibility that his ideas on this changed and evolved. The, um, it does actually bring up an interesting point, which is another thing that the American model is terribly suited to deal with. In the American model, you have one oppressor and everyone else is oppressed. So in America, whites are racist against minorities. Well, white, not to be picky, but I would say white men particularly. White men, more so. Straight white men. Very much so. The problem is when you actually look across history and across the world, that's not really what you see. You see, you tend to see racism moving in all directions and between minorities. I mean, Gandhi didn't like black people, at least early in his life. Again, he was also a member of an ethnic minority. And the American model doesn't deal with that well because it, it thinks of everything in this sort of very linear structure. Yeah, well, that's why it doesn't had, make sense. That's why the model has difficulty dealing with Asians. If you look at the figures for, say, Japanese people of a Jap- Japanese or, or Chinese, I think, background of the United States, it's, it's not that they outperform the average, they outperform white people. They are, in, if you're talking about income, if you're talking about uh, accumulated wealth, if you're talking about attendance in universities, if you're talking about the possession of advanced degrees, presence in professions, Chinese Americans and and Japanese Americans outperform everybody except possibly Ashkenazi Jews. And that's a tricky one there because we know there's a there's a broad consensus, Gary, that Jews haven't had it easy for a long time, pretty well anywhere. Uh, it depends. You're, you know, you're talking to a member of the uh, Britain's Labour Party; they might disagree with you on that. Uh, in the unlikely situation, the circumstances that would happen, I, 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 I'd like some dates and some maps, please, to support reference to text. And yes, they have succeeded in doing uh, remarkably well at levels of education. Uh, uh, culturally, in business, academia, they have been disproportionately contributed to the advancement of the human species and human culture to their size. And yet they have been consistently uh, and pretty horribly discriminated against. 
uh, yeah, it's but they're white now, of course, because I get you as you said before. I think until the nineteen forties, I don't know, early fifties, Jews in America were not actually were not white, but they're they are very definitely white now. Apparently, but this kind of gets to the heart of the the problem when we this identitarian because we we have we've moved beyond that discussion anyway, Gary. We are now talking about I. It's not just it is. This we are being told that we must return to our very specific identity box. So you are not just a white person. You're a white male. You're a white straight white male. You're a cisgender straight white male, and that's your box. And you have to stay there because then you got you got gay guys, and they get yeah, they get get some points, and you got white women, and then white gay women, and. As Christina Hoff Summers, when she talks about this, and others have said it as well, the problem with identitarian this identitarian politics is it's an it's an infinite regression, which makes it utterly unstable because everybody's constantly competing to see how many points they can score on the on the identitarian scale to win the game, whatever winning the game happens to mean. I don't know what the I don't see where the end I don't see how this makes us. Better neighbors, better citizens, happier, more productive, anything. I, I don't see that either. In fact, it just seems to be increasing racial resentment, which, to be honest, I think was absolutely foreseeable. If you create a situation in which people are made to feel guilty about their histories, where their history is basically said to be anything done by someone of the same skin colour, it would appear to me fairly intuitive that you will also cause some people to start to take inordinate pride in also, the achievements yeah. of people of the same skin colour of them, if that is what you are saying is the most important defining characteristic of a population. You're also uh, going to cause... You're going to, I think, provoke aggression because... Some people, you, you people will feel guilty, and then, but at the same time, they will live in dissonance because they won't understand why they feel guilty, and that's going to that would that that kind of uh, shall we say thesis antithesis synthesis. This may not produce synthesis, but it may produce uh, uh, aggression. No, just Heidegger. Just to well, Marx is much as Heidegger, but just to make. Reference to the reason we mentioned Gandhi is because, as we speak, there is a statue of Gandhi in Leicester, which is a city with a very large Indian population, and there is a Black Lives Moment movement to pull down colonial statues in Britain's gaining ground. It has also been suggested that the seven-foot bronze statue should be taken down. Uh, there have. The Labour on Council has have received a petition which has got four thousand signatures, and it says Gandhi is a fascist and a racist, and the monument should be pulled down. Who's going to be left? I mean, Jesus will Jesus survive? Uh, no. We'll we'll pull that down for the crimes of the church, and then we'll build temples to reason in their place. Buddha. But a lot of these people are really into Buddhism. They've got that weird atheistic Buddhism 
where they look down on the religious beliefs of others while adhering to pretty much a religious system. But yeah, we call that the Sam Harris movement. <laughs> I I love that he's so into it. Actually, sorry, it's it wasn't it was Hegelian dialectics is what I was thinking of from a synthesis. Well, yeah, well, that's Marx gets it from Hegel. Mm. Um. And I'm not going to explain what that means, and Michael, neither are you, because we do not have that time. Nor, I suspect, the capacity. And he, I remember being told many months ago by a wise a wise young Marxist, the man that thinks he understands Hegel is the man that is wrong. Anyway, we... Uh, there's a lady. There's a lady, Gary. She has a job with um, TCD. Ah, the Robina racist. And UCD. And I think the Royal College of Surgeons. And she says that, it was it Ireland? We have our knee on the back of black people. Racism is the knee on our neck, making it hard to breathe, something like that. I don't know. This was the lady that when she was in a, she was in a restaurant in Galway and she ordered a bottle of wine and she was given a bottle of Ribena. The rate strong explained afterwards that, that they have, which is a normal practice, lot you have bottles out front which are show bottles, and they're kept filled with liquids to which mimic the color. But obviously you don't put you don't have bottles out in certain places because the wine, if it's in if it's very hot or in direct sunlight, the wine will go. And the server on that night was uh, inexperienced, didn't had never done the job before, and by accident brought this bottle, which she felt was an aggressive act, an aggressive and racist act. And maybe she was right. I think that unlikely, char- though. I think uh, unlikely. I it, it would be an un- it would have been unusual anyway. But the Galway as well, Galway. It's Galway's our Seattle. The only thing I just, I, I like to, I, there's part of me, I, I, I likes to look at the world in a sense in an economic sort of way. You know, I'd say, like, bono, you know, who, who gets the benefit? What's the business? The response has been desperately earnest to this. And people really take it very, very seriously and listening and are, and all I can think of is this headline which basically says woman with job as witch finder finds witches. I, the older I get, the more I move towards a sort of uh, maybe the French are right. Maybe the actual solution to this is to simply look at someone and say you have misunderstood the situation. You are an idiot. <laughs> And if they say, but uh, we have a serious matter, and you simply say, no, you are an idiot. If you if you legitimately think being given a bottle of Ribena is racism, I'm sorry. I think I'm going to probably think everything you say from now on is stupid. Uh, because... Gary, uh, <laughs> Gary is advocating uh, a form what was called by a French... Uh, philosopher and historian Michel Foucault called terrorism, which was practiced by one of the great French, well, great, most important French thinkers of the 20th century called Derrida. 
And he said that Derrida's basic approach to everything was if you criticized him, his response was always the same. Vous m'avez mal compris, vous êtes idiot. You have not understood me. You're an idiot. <laughs> I could absolutely, absolutely see that Gary would take that position too pretty well. You have misunderstood me. You are an idiot. Well, we, <laughs> this I actually think is part of the problem. We have allowed these people to define the terms and to say these are serious arguments. And then over time, we keep losing. Whereas I think the issue is not that the arguments are good, because in general, they're terrible. But because people accept them as, as things they have to be very earnest and careful about. Whereas I think a simpler, what you have said is one of the stupidest things I've ever heard. Is it what will happen is people Why are who are you here? Yeah, people who are in, who have uh, have power or, or influence in response to this will feel that what they have to do is they will have to go through a whole series of circumlocations before. They'll say, Of course racism is a problem in Ireland. Of course we have to deal with racism in Ireland. Of course we have to set up structures and look at how we can move on and how we can be better people, blah, 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 before they can get ever near the point of saying, but I don't think that this the lady is actually right to think that, which actually means that by the time you get to the point, you have confused. Yeah, you have five minutes telling them, telling the crowd that they're perfectly right. Right. But then, and then, and then you say at the last minute, well, but I think they're actually wrong, at which point, and now even I have to say, I feel that I should say, well, by the way, I do think, I'm sure there are, because there are racists in, in Ireland and people have suffered from racism. No one, no one I have ever talked to has been able to give me a solid example of systemic discrimination against black people in Ireland. Well, you see, that's They've a been whole, able to bring up individual issues. That's a whole different thing. Systemic racism or structural racism in Ireland as opposed to uh, individual acts of racism, you know... And the fact that there are individual acts of racism is very much the story of, you know, dog bites man because people are bad and wicked and nasty and do horrible and bad and wicked someone, things to other human beings. And that's who, not news. Someone who says that the Irish system kneels on the necks of Irish, Ireland's marginalised people every day is not a serious person. Their, their arguments don't need to be taken seriously because... They either don't believe them and they're rhetorical, in which case they're not arguing in good faith, or they do believe them, in which case they're an idiot. And in the same way, there's no point in playing chess with a pigeon, because it doesn't matter how well you play, it's going to strut around the board shitting everywhere, <laughs> thinking it's won. Yeah, yeah, I, that's, yeah. I, 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 the same is true of drafts. You just waste your time. And this, this, this political thing now and we see it in Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael on nearly every issue where they will accept the premises of their opponents and then at the end say, but we don't think that'll work and then they have this why are we slowly becoming less popular why are we ceding ground to our opponents and you sort of go well it could be because every time you answer you say they're right that may actually be part of it it's not really surprising when you lose not to circle back, but in the context of this, I was just, it, the, the headline that was used for the Eamon Ryan story on the Independent Online, to me, uh, spoke a, a little bit to this, which was Ryan's use of racial slur 
threatens coalition efforts. Now, if you didn't know anything else about the story, you knew nothing about it. Ryan's use of racial slur threatens coalition efforts. To me, that rather than so conjuring up the picture of Eamon Ryan giving an impassioned speech against racism in Ireland, quoting what he the words of a uh, of a person in Ireland who had suffered racist incidents and he which had made which had disgusted and angered Eamon Ryan and he was bringing this into the dog to get so to impress the seriousness of this on the Parliament of Ireland. It seems to me that headline use of racial is makes me more like think that Eamon Ryan was having a few pints and was overheard say overheard in toners saying something racist. Ryan's use of racial slur threatens coalition. But maybe that's just me. Maybe that's just my bad mindedness. Yeah, it, you're absolutely. They, there isn't. Well, I wouldn't say there isn't a politician willing to do it. There are. I mean, people like Matthew McGrath might do it. But within the party system, it's hard to imagine that you could have a situation where you have prime time and you have Dr. I can't remember the lady's name now. Dr. Anyway. It's gone from me, my memory. Actually, on prime time, and there's a, a, a TD from the Labour Party or from Sinn Féin or, say, Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael because they're supposedly more conservative. Looking across and saying, I'm sorry, but you're wrong. I can't imagine that. I, I Literally, I find it impossible. Even though I know a number of these people and I am absolutely sure that that is what they believe in their hearts to be true. But they would never say it. I um, yeah, I would, I would quite like to see a politician just say you're wrong, you're, you're wrong, and you don't, you don't get to define these terms. You don't get to say that this is now racist and that is now racist, and assume that that will be taken seriously automatically simply because you have said it, and that this is because you have said it. This is the description of the lived life the lived daily experience of black people or people for the minorities in Ireland. I just got a you know, anecdote, anecdata. I, is it, is it, you know, is there any point in it? But I remember asking, I had two friends, close friends uh, from Brazil, both of whom would be in, uh, you describe I suppose, African-Brazilian, if they use that kind of language in Brazil, I don't know, but they're black. And I asked them what it was like, what, what their experience like was like at different times in Ireland regarding uh, race and racial things. One said that he he remembered that he had had no negative experiences in Ireland, but he had had uh, a number of experiences in Brazil, uh, which had been very upsetting, one particularly as a, as a child. Uh, the other said he didn't say, mention anything about Brazil, but he said that in the at this stage five, six years living in Ireland, he has never had, he's never encountered. Now maybe they just didn't notice, Gary. Maybe they didn't notice. Maybe they didn't hear it. Maybe at the beginning their English wasn't up to realizing that they were being insulted. Maybe because they're kind of easygoing guys, something happened that maybe was a kind of a 
nasty offhand racist thing to do, but they didn't see it because they don't look at the world like that. I don't know. Maybe, maybe they haven't they... been appropriately informed of the variety of racial microaggressions yeah. that could may... have been happening around them. An anecdote is not anecdote. I know that. But these are two men who have been living in Dublin and living in Dublin for many years now and have not had that experience. My point is simply this, that if what she's, she's describing makes the lived experience, the daily lived experience of these of, of, of people of, of colour in Ireland sound pretty horrific, pretty awful. And if that was the case, then I think that they would have noticed that this was the experience. Also, the fact that they are mixing constantly. They have lots of other friends from that, the same, that ethnic background. Who'd, they would have started to notice, it seems to me. But nobody will... Well, nobody so far, it seems to me, has really questioned it. This has been taken with this, this imprimatur. Because if it is true, and the thing is, it, it, this is important, because if what she is saying was true, well, then that would be a very serious problem. And it would be a horrible thing to say about Irish society and about the culture that we have. And we would have to do something very serious about it. But if people go... If, if it's very hard when people seem to be in this... As a business, it's getting harder and harder to distinguish when you could, when you can take what somebody is saying as a sincere statement of their experience, or as a business opportunity. Hmm. I I just reminded myself of the concept of microaggressions. Yeah. Yes. Which is lot, a wonderful lot. sign of the working of American racial politics that, as the actual discrimination disappeared. They needed to invent a concept which, by its very definition, is so small as to be largely irrelevant. And then started looking for those. There's also the, there's the, the, the story there also is what, we're, what you're teaching people to do. John McWhorter has talked about this. He says that uh, there are times when something will happen and he will be aware of Maybe the way he's treated in a restaurant or when he's at a conference and he sees some there's a there's a behaviour or an attitude and he thinks, oh, there that was that was racist. That's that was because I'm black and that's because he was white. But McWhorter's point is that it doesn't define him. It doesn't consume him. He just picks up his life and he goes on with it. Because that's what is the best thing for him to live a happy life. But if we're teaching, if we're going to teach children that this is what you should be obsessed with, we are not teaching children to be happy. We're not teaching them how to be, how to have a good life. I, mean, I, I don't know, did you see there was a paper published, an, another paper published by trauma experts on the use of trigger warnings? Yes, they found that they increase trauma. Yeah, that if, if uh, that they have... There is there is no 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 evidence that they are a, pos, which, a positive for people. Makes, uh, absolutely, uh, I mean that that makes sense. It makes intuitive sense. If something is so serious that it needs to be preceded by a formal warning of the harm that this thing could do to you, yeah, surely you'd expect that to spike anxiety. Because you're being told this is the most important thing in your life. But also this is the appropriate way to respond to this thing. Yes. That it's not to learn to get used to it or to you know, 
overcome your issues. No, this, this, we have accepted that this is now the way to do this. And I think the problem with a lot of people on racial issues is that it's now been accepted. The terms of the argument have now been accepted in a way that is guaranteed to increase racial resentment while doing very little other than making people feel deeply uncomfortable about talking about the situation. Which also then has problems in that as people become more and more interested in the issue but less able to talk about it, they'll turn to people who are willing to talk about it generally in quite uh, extreme forms because those people don't care what a lot of the mainstream think of them. No, they don't care and... Well, it's more than they don't care. They actually have a act of despite for it, and they don't share our value. Well, they don't share my value, and they're perfectly happy to be nasty and hurtful and aggressive and violent, uh, because that's that's their world view. And I think we we need to. Well, it's such an easy thing to say. We need to be mindful that we do not adopt a strategy to deal with a problem that is a strategy which has not only failed, but in fact, in many ways, has made the problem worse. You know, a lot of people say, oh, but if you look at the state, the United States, it's it's clear and obvious that uh, these policies have worked. Well, it's, well, it's clear and obvious that many, many African-Americans since in the last 40 years have got on, have done better, have moved up the scale, have become professionals, have got jobs, have built up wealth, the average incomes keep going up, that they have become more and more successful. But to make to assume that that success was contingent on them being gifted something by the dominant white power seems to me to be remarkably, I mean, a remarkably patronizing assumption about the capacity of black Americans to lift themselves up. I mean, and it's a stat I think I've probably used before, but if you look between 1865 and 1900, you go from a time when it was actually illegal to teach uh, slaves uh, to read to a point where I think by, by 1900, 70% of black Americans are literate. I can't think of another example in a, such a short space of time of that kind of uplift occurring with a, within one particular group or one community. It's a remarkable thing. The economic uplift that continues the next 20 years continues till the, the 1920s. You've the burgeoning life of entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship in Black America. Black Americans have got on because they have, because they have done it themselves, okay. and have been stymied, if anything, by the activities of government. It is. Uh, it is. There is a great humour in America, and what we're seeing being exported from America in that we're being told that there is a great deal of division in countries and in communities, and this is harmful and hurtful, by people whose actions seem entirely designed to increase division. Well, yeah, some of them certainly. And then, Whether or not they know that. Yeah, I mean, they, some, of them, some of them may be well-intended. Some of them are, you have to imagine some of them are bad faith actors. You know Tanahisi Coates? Yes. You come, you come across him. He wrote a... I, I only managed to read a couple of chapters. It was basically a book written to his son. He can write. He can write wonderfully well. But if his vision of America is genuinely what he feels, I honest to God don't know why he's still there. It is so bleak 
and so unredeemed. Why he would choose to, why he would choose to tell his child that this is tell his child this for a start, but why he would choose to bring his child up in that place baffles me, because there is in that vision there is essentially no hope. It seems to me for America, there must be somewhere better. To bring your child. I mean, he's a man of talent. I'm sure he could get a job and do well anywhere in the world. Why stay in that place? I don't. I don't understand. But anyway, we have been wandering around the subject, which I'm sure we're going to wander around many, many more times uh, in the future. So perhaps it's time to let release the read the, the listener back into the wild. We shall be back on Sunday with our. Tidy up the week. There may be even more news by Sunday. Who knows? Gandhi may be gone. Jesus Jesus is on the list next. See, Muhammad is lucky. There are no statues of Muhammad. I mean, he did get lucky on that one. Um, there used to be statues of Muhammad. Did there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dif- different points in the development of Islam, different views were held on uh, on representations of Muhammad. Uh, so there were there were as far as I know they were all destroyed though of course then you have the various sects and splits in Islam as well and they yes. all take slightly different views um I will in, I'll, I will include in the show notes of this episode links to the Lenny Bruce comedy sets they're actually quite good and uh also I think I'll include the a a link to what I think is the finest. Uh, moment of racial joking on British TV, which is Brass Eyes' uh, investigation into the connections between race and crime. Yeah, that's what you call that's what you call satire. <laughs> How that if that if that survives, I shall be amazed. I mean, they got past that one where they um, remember the paedophile episode that got them kicked oh. off TV. Oh, yeah. Do you know what it was that people actually took umbrage with about that episode? What? It's the part where they capture a pedophile and the show host asks him, would he have sex with his children? And the pedophile says no, because they're not attractive. It's the Oscar Wilde answer, isn't it? People Did... said that that was, uh, that that was damaging to that child's uh, sense of self. Which no, 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 I... no, 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 no. No, you're no. making that up. No, no, that's what happened. No. Yeah. <laughs> Oh God! It's like you know, when Carson asked Wild uh, in the tr- in the in the trial, "Did you kiss the butler?" And Wild said, "Oh no, he was far too ugly." <laughs> I wonder did the butler go off and go into a decline I, because I, I, Wild I, hadn't found him attractive. Oh. I do love the idea that if he if that pedophile in that show had said yes, they would have been like, "Well, that's healthy for a child's uh, development," because that's also a dodgy sentence to say. That is, I don't know. I don't know. What, I mean, you could pick that up and look at it. Every, uh, that is a biz- that's bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> it would have been better for the child's development if the person, the Peter Wilde said, oh, absolutely, yes. Very attractive child. Yes, absolutely. Uh, that's... <laughs> that's talking nonsense. Oh, oh, God, yes, nonsense. Anyway... On that note, I think we'll say goodbye. We'll mind yourselves. We'll talk. We'll talk again on Sunday. All the best. <laughs>